Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore beliefs and practices shaping our world. This week, we begin with Jesuit priest Father James Martin. He is a New York Times bestselling author and one of the most recognizable priests on television. He has a sense of humor and isn't afraid to show it, especially with his friend, late-night talk show host and comedian Stephen Colbert. Do you get that kind of applause when you say Mass? Every Sunday. <laughs> really? Yes. Right up here. Yeah, You're right? hearing it. Father Jim has written numerous books in a way that is accessible and has an appeal beyond Catholicism. His latest book, Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone, definitely fits that description. I spoke with him via Zoom from his Manhattan home, where he lives in a community with 11 other Jesuits. Welcome to the show. It is not every day that I get uh, Stephen Colbert's chaplain on the program. Well, I'm happy to be your chaplain for your program as well. Well, thank you. Hey, we don't have one, you know, so I might, I might take you up on that. Well, you do now. I do now. Hey, I. so let me ask you this question. What'd you give up for Lent? Well, you know, it's funny. I have a, a Jewish friend of mine named Rob who calls me up every year and tells me what to give up. It's a tradition that started uh, at college. Because my friends in college thought, you know, why should you be the one who decides what you give up? We should tell you what to give up. And so that that turned into Rob um, every year calling me. So this year I'm giving up. He told me to give up mint. Mint? Um, za'atar. Yeah, za'atar. Or mints. Mint, like, like breath mints. Ah. Za'atar, the, um, the spice and waffles. Oh, my but God. I do, yeah, I know. It's kind of hard. But I actually do real penances. I try to just be kinder every Lent. Mm. Try to be kind. And I think that this year, you know, people have given up so much. It's been like a year-long Lent, Yeah, you know? So I, th- I think trying to do more positive things might be more helpful. Be more kind, though, coming from you. I, like, I would imagine you're a pretty kind person already. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I mean, I try to be kind, but, you know, I can be, you know, I can lose my temper. And um, I think that the pandemic has made people more irritable, right, and more kind of touchy. I can lose my temper and I can gossip sometimes and be unkind. I mean, I'm never actively mean to people, but I think we can always learn to be kinder and more patient too, right? Sort of more tolerant. Look, I live in a community with 12 guys, right? So you can fill in the blanks. (laughs) It's like a fraternity, right? It's, it's, Mm -hmm. and you know, we're like a big family. Not everybody always gets along. I'll tell you, can I tell you a quick funny story? Sure. Um, When I first joined the Jesuits, my brother-in-law, who's a wonderful guy, um, said to me, it must be wonderful. You live there and there are you know, never any arguments. And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, you all have to be Christian and kind to each other. I said, well, you're Christian too. I mean, <laughs> so I think people tend to forget that life in religious orders is, you know, like mainly like a life anywhere else. Now you wrote this book, Learning to Pray, which I, I told you at the beginning of our conversation before we hit the record button, I really enjoyed it. I don't know if you know this about me. Um, I'm not Christian. I am Muslim. And so, you know, whenever I see, okay, I'm just going like, to put, put it out there here. Whenever I see, uh, here's how you pray and it's coming from a priest. I'm like, okay, this is a self-help. This is really just for one group of people. But boy, you surprised me. I opened it up and I started reading the first couple chapters and I thought, this is this is good. This is good stuff. You say this book 
is for everyone. And I have to say, thank you for that, because I kind of feel like I'm in that everyone category. Well, thank you for that. You know, thank you for that, because that that really means a lot to me. You're the first Muslim person I think that I've, I've talked to that has read the book. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people out there that I think are Muslim who are reading the book. That really means a lot to me. And, and you know, God is for everybody, right? And prayers for everybody. I mean, that's why the first line of the book is so important to me. Everyone can pray. So thanks for saying that. I really, that's very moving to hear. And I'm glad, I'm glad you found yourself in the book because God wants to encounter you. And, you know, I mean, the book is, you know, I mean, it's from a Christian standpoint, but God's, God wants to encounter you, I, as you know, you know. And I want to say, this is almost like a confessional here. I'm not Catholic and here I am doing this little confessional now. That's okay. But I'm, I'm a priest, so you can, you can, <laughs> I, I can go for it, the, right? I can hear the confession. Yeah. I, you know, I have my own complicated story with prayer, my own mm-hmm. complicated relationship with it. You know, I found myself literally kind of falling to my knees, not wanting to participate in this rote activity that I was told I had to. And then one day when I faced crisis, found myself craving to be in that fetal position on my mat. Mm. And then as a parent, I have found myself struggling to not want to traumatize my kids by saying, you must pray, you know, but wanting them to access and have this experience in which they feel it is accessible to them and something that they can make their own and I come from a tradition where the prayers, at least being an immigrant and Arabic not being my native language, being told I have to pray in a different language, being told that it has to look a certain way, the ability to access prayer, I didn't learn until I was older that there are all these other ways. It was so lovely to read the book and find myself, my own journey, kind of echoed in some of your experiences, which how hilarious is that, right? Um, there, But I it's loved beautiful. it. I really enjoyed Th- it. Thank you for sharing that. And I think your experience, you know, is probably, you know, typical of many Muslims, uh, but also more universal, that people are taught a particular way to pray, right? And, you know, at the, which, which is fine. Like those ways of praying, you know, which I have a whole chapter on there on standard prayer and rote prayers, they're fine. And, you know, sometimes, as you say, which I think is very, uh, very important, you know, when I was struggling, I sort of fell back on that, right? Because it was there. And a lot of times with standard prayers and rote prayers, they do that for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Christian tradition, you know, like the Our Father and the Hail Mary, I must have prayed those a billion times. And yet, to your other point, which is also important, there's other ways of doing it, right? I think your 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 comment about your is it your son? Yeah, I have two boys. I have two boys, and so um, I, one who's 21 and one who's 14. Oh my gosh! Okay, um, yeah. So the question is, you know, presenting it to to your children um, in a way that's inviting, right? So it, it's a kind of attention because you don't want to make it just another thing to do, right? Because then it becomes a burden. By the same token. If they don't have any sort of structure or framework, then when they themselves right. find themselves in difficulty, they have nowhere to go, right, in terms of their prayer life. So I would imagine, I mean, I'm not a parent, obviously, you know more than I do, but I would imagine there is that tension between there is. wanting them to have that resource, but also not wanting to like, you know, browbeat them with it. You don't. And, you know, even though you're not a parent, you capture in in several of the chapters the the formative experience that young people have. A lot of times in conversations I've had 
in this program, exploring beliefs with people from different traditions. One theme that emerges from people who tend to leave the tradition that they came from or were raised in um, and what led them or drew them into another tradition. One common theme is the trauma or judgment that they felt within the tradition that they were given a feeling like they weren't enough or that they yeah. didn't do it right. Yeah. Did- One of the reasons I wanted to talk about those experiences when I was a boy was to remind people that most people have those experiences. I'm not like some big you know, mystic or a saint. And the, the experiences I had at a boy, which is kind of asking for things, being in dialogue with God, trying to convince him of things like get me a dog. Um, and then, you know, one moment I had when I was very young, sort of a, almost like a mystical experience um, to remind people that, you know, they have those kinds of experiences too. Um, and again, there is no, to go back to what you were saying before, there's no one right way to pray. Right. And I think you're, you're right that people um, sometimes in religious traditions have really difficult times with prayer because they're told this is the way you have to pray. And if you not only if you don't like it, but if you don't feel like you're good at it, then there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, they carry that. And so one of the invitations in the book, you know, which I'm, I'm so glad you, you enjoyed, uh, is that prayer is for everyone. There's lots of different ways to pray. The only right way to pray is the way that you find helpful in terms of encountering God. And that also the prayer can be dry and, you know, kind of sometimes even boring. Yeah. And that's OK, like, like any relationship. So, yeah, I think that the shoulds. My old spiritual director, you'll love this. Um, I didn't put it in this book. Yeah, I used to call it um, shooting all over yourself, S-H-O-U-L-D-I-N-G. <laughs> and that is especially the case with prayer. You know, you should pray this way. And okay, well, I don't like praying that way. Well, you have to. Mm-hmm. And that, that really can mess people up. You it's know, like it- saying, I, look, the, the image is the relationship. And so, for example, you know, if you and I went out to dinner like on a Friday, you say, let's go out to dinner every Friday. Now, if our relationship was nothing more than that, well, that's okay. But it could be a lot more than that. You know, it could be other kinds of relating. And so, and then to take it a step further, if I were to say to someone, you should go out with your friends every week. And if you don't go out with your friends every week to dinner, to this place, you're not a good friend. People like, no, that's crazy. I do all sorts of things with my friends. Sorry, this is the way to relate to your friends. That's the, that's the kind of image and prayer that we have to get away from. My conversation with Father Jim Martin continues after this short break. Stay with us. friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member 
of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining this week, we're revisiting my 2021 conversation with Jesuit priest Father James Martin. His book, Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone, is an invitation to think about the ritual of prayer differently. He writes like he talks with an openness, humility, and humor. It's not surprising that he is beloved for his advocacy and outspoken work on behalf of communities that are often excluded and marginalized in faith settings, including the LGBTQ community. And because of that advocacy, he has been attacked by conservatives, some of whom have called for him to be defrocked. But those pressure tactics to silence Father Jim have failed. And what's clear from his latest book, He's making a case again for inclusion, that cultivating a prayer practice should be accessible to all. Let's get back to the conversation. God wants to be in relationship with everyone, not just, I mean, you will laugh when I say it, but not just Catholics. I mean, God <laughs> wants to be in relationship Catholics and Christians and Protestants and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims. I mean, I've had so many people come to me for advice over the years that to, to focus it just on Catholics or Christians would have seemed crazy because I've had, look, I had a, I had a, a rabbi for a while who was a spiritual directee of mine, as they say. And, you know, I mean, I need to take him where he is and how God is active in his life. And the same with, you know, Muslim friends and agnostic friends and and seeking friends. So God, my, my belief is that God is looking is looking to have a relationship with all those people. So I wanted to include all those people in the book. You went to business school and then you decided to become a Jesuit priest. Just mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about that journey. It, it wasn't until I, uh, I, I'd worked in the corporate world for about, I'd say four or five years. Um, I, I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. I took a job at GE and, you know, it was exciting. And I was living in New York in the eighties. I was a yuppie to use a sort of a, a phrase from back then. And, but then gradually I started to feel a little less satisfied. You know, now, as you know, vocation, uh, work is a real vocation. Business is a real vocation for a, a lot of people. Maybe a lot of people who are listening, um, but it just didn't seem to be for me. I felt like a square peg in a round hole. And one night I came home and turned on the TV and there was a documentary about Thomas Merton, mm. the Trappist monk, and it just captivated me and it got me thinking about doing something else. And this is how God was at work through, through my desires. And this was the call. And, you know, I remind people in the book that when they're feeling that kind of desire for God, however it comes, you know, if it's in prayer or something else, you know, to pay attention to it. And this is, you know, God works. I would say mainly through our desires in life when it comes to finding our vocation. So, yeah, so I, I left the corporate world and joined the Jesuits and never looked back. 
what do you feel like your biggest contribution is right now? What, what are you trying to contribute to the world? As every Jesuit would say, to, to help people encounter God. In their, in their daily lives and in their prayer. You know, that's, that's the basic thing that Jesuits do. Our, one of our unofficial mottos, it's not official, but it should be, is finding God in all things, right? And in this case, it was to help people find God in their prayer. Um, but I also do work with, you know, um, LGBTQ Catholics and, you know, refugees and migrants. And I mean, these days it's all from my, you know, from my home, right? I mean, I'm not going out. But, um, but those are the kinds of ministries that I do on the side. But the main one is, to help people encounter God, right? Which is a good, I think, a good task for for anybody, no matter what their faith practice is. If someone was listening and has a real kind of clarity in their mind about what they believe and don't believe, and they think about praying, but they don't have a prayer practice, what do you suggest they do? I would say the first thing to do is to recognize that the desire you have for prayer and that the desire you have for deeper connection with God uh, come, is coming from God. That that's how God works. And so, in the midst of the pandemic, if you if you feel yourself, um, you know, sort of asking big questions and wondering where God is, and wondering if um, you know God's part of your life or how God can be part of your life, or you're desiring more uh, of God's presence because you're feeling lonely or overwhelmed, that's coming from God. And so, one of the things to 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 sort of remind yourself of is that this is not just your own kind of personal curiosity or this is God calling you and to sort of respond to that. That really helps people at the beginning to know that they're responding to something, that it's not just something they're sort of striking out on their own. And then the second thing I would say, I mean, my joke would be, you know, buy my book and learn how to pray. But my, my, <laughs> the second thing would be to, to try to explore different ways of prayer, right? Try to explore different ways of prayer. Notice what comes up. I mean, I talk a lot about that in the book and also be okay with dry times, right? It, it would be like saying, you know, to someone who falls in love, right? Um, so you say, what will I expect? Well, you know, you expect this and, you know, sort of intimacy and physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. And, but, you know, there's also going to be tough times. So that, that shouldn't sort of um, scare people off, right? It can, you know, it can be kind of boring and, you know, relationship can be a slog, but it's about the relationship and about the fidelity to the relationship ultimately. You know, I was wondering if you're going to say the word commitment, because I think that there is something about, you know, you're reminding me of something my mom used to say. I remember leaving home and she's like, are you praying five times a day? And I didn't want to lie to her. I, you know, I, I really wanted, I wanted to be honest. I said, Mom, I am finding other ways to pray. Mm-hmm. And she just, she kind of paused and she said, I, she said, what does that mean? And I said, well, I go for a walk down into the park. Um, or I, you know, cl- st- do meditation and yoga, and I get really present. And I feel like I am having the spiritual experience. And she listened and she said, Well, that's all really good. But you need to pray five times a day. And it was an interesting conversation we had, because what she said is, I know that those five times might feel like you're just moving through the motions, but I want you to get the discipline, because you need to have that discipline so that when you need it, it's there. You know how to do that, it. Yeah, that's a good insight from your mom. And I also think that, that not only the commitment, but the regularity means that you're, you're more open to having those experiences. Because again, to use the relationship model, if you're seeing a friend every single week, okay, there's, a, there's an openness and a, an opportunity for deep things to happen, right? Not, maybe not every time, but if you never see them, Right. And if you never have that intentional one on one time, it's not going to happen. And I'm going to share something with you. I haven't shared with too many people um, because of your background. Often when I walk through um, 
Central Park, I'll see Muslim men on their prayer mats, if that's the right word, mm-hmm. facing, I assume, facing Mecca, right? Right. And praying, which I just think is beautiful. In the middle of the day, so, I mean, I, I happen to see a group of them um, at the, the entrance to Central Park near where I live. I think it's beautiful. And the other thing that I don't think I've shared with anyone, I find that that physical posture, right, of the, the kneeling and your, your mm-hmm. forehead on the ground, tremendously conducive to prayer. And I found that uh, one of the places I pray that um, is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which is the holiest site in the Christian world. I mean, other than like the heart of a believer, I always say, but it's where Jesus's tomb is and where he rose from the dead. And I was so overwhelmed by the holiness of the place. To me, that was the most appropriate physical posture. Mm. And I find it very helpful for prayer. And so now would I ever say to somebody, you know, another Christian or another Catholic, you must pray this way? No, I'd say like, this is my way of praying, you know, and I, I really find it helpful. And I got that from you know, Muslim men that I see in New York City. So yeah. I've, it's, it's tremendous. So there's something about posture, I think, that's really important. There was something in the book um, about what happens when no one answers. And that sense um, of disappointment and just like, huh, I put all this effort in and you're not here. Yeah. And that's very common. One of the things I wanted to sort of focus on and face clearly in the book are some of the hardest questions in prayer. I think the hardest one is what happens when you pray, like what actually happens when you close your eyes. And I talk about the various things that can happen, emotions, memories, desires, insights, feelings, words, and phrases. But also that, that really even maybe even more difficult question is what happens when it feels like your prayer is not answered. I think that's really important because so many books on prayer avoid that topic. Because it's difficult and you, you're kind of giving this promise of something. You, and in the Gospels, Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. Knock and the door shall be open. Whatever you ask for, you're going to get. I mean, that's pretty clear in the Gospels. And yet, look, we have to be, we have to be honest. Uh, that doesn't happen for a lot of people. So if I pray for someone who's sick with COVID not to die and they die, my prayer was not answered. Now, what God is doing and where God is is a little more mysterious. And the answer to the question is, why doesn't it seem like we get what we pray for all the time? The answer is, we don't know. I think we need to be clear about that, which doesn't mean that you're not still in relationship with God. I mean, the invitation is to be in relationship with a God that you don't understand. That's the relationship. That, and that's the, that's the call in those situations. But I think the, the danger is kind of soft peddling that question right? And pretending that it doesn't exist or, or giving some vague answer. And I, I talk about some of the vague answers in my book, why, why they're always so frustrating. I want to ask you about the prayer role plays and, and prayer how and what your take is, is when those, those prayers, prayers can, can be in, in their own way, exclusionary or filled with judgment. We are social beings, and so we naturally want to pray with one another. There's a reason I would say that Jesus called 12 apostles and not just one guy, right, to be his assistant, which he could have, but he knew we needed a community. But you're right, in, in a lot of situations, or maybe in some situations, people find that parts of the liturgy or parts of the church's tradition or whatever religious tradition you have can feel exclusionary um, and can feel, you know, like it's a block, you know, between you and God. And I think um, one of the, you know, I, I hope helpful insights in the book is that God can communicate with you anyway, right? That, that as St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits said, 
uh, the creator can deal directly with the creature. So I meet a lot of people who have trouble with their, their religious traditions. God is still in relationship with them. I do believe that you know people are naturally, as I said, communal and social, but that doesn't mean that you can't pray, that you shouldn't pray, that God's not going to answer your prayers. So I think it's, I think it's important to see God as bigger than religion, right? God is not contained in any one religion. God is not Catholic, right? Let's just say that. God's All right. not Catholic. Well, you just did. God's not Catholic. <laughs> and so it's, a, it's, a, it's an invitation for people who might struggle to remember that God is still with them. You talk about the religious institutions that we have built up um, that foster that communal prayer. It also can create a sense of solidarity, a sense oh, sure. we're in this together, we're in this difficult moment together. And I can't help but think about our brothers and sisters in Texas without power or the you know babies in tents in camps on the border and the children who are starving in Yemen. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I find myself thinking about all of that suffering. I just want to ask you what role prayer and communal prayer plays in how we take all of that suffering, all of that emotion. It's a great question. It's a great question. And I would say that one of the reasons that you're thinking about that, you know, you yourself and others is that God is raising that up within you. And so to pay attention to that. So in other words, the compassion and the sadness we feel about all those people you met and so many more, right? All the people on the margins, all the people who are struggling, all the people whose lives are in danger is, is God's compassion, right? And that is being expressed in your heart to move you. I mean, how else would God move us other than to evoke these feelings of compassion within us? And so the, the question is, what's the response, right? So when we feel pity, I mean, oftentimes when Jesus sees people who are struggling, the common is his heart was moved with pity. The Greek is he felt it in his guts, right? He had to, he had to act. And so the question is, what do we do in response? And the, the Christian response, well, the Christian response and also the ethical response, the believer's response is to answer God's call and to do something. For me, that's one of the main roles of prayer, not simply asking for God to help, but recognizing that the feelings that we feel are being raised up in us so that we can help. Each other. Yeah, right. I have this really multi-faith family. Mm -hmm. So whenever I hear someone talk about, and when I think about these things, I'm always mindful of how it's landing in the ears of my, Mm. my loved ones who are good, wonderful, compassionate, empathetic people. And I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with in prayer that I've seen is the feeling that that somehow is an entry door for only one type of person. Oh, you mean prayer? Yeah. Prayer as an entry for only one kind of person. I think one one way to sort of respond to that is to see all the people, the different kinds of people who pray. I mean, so you can go to a synagogue, you can go to a mosque, you can go to a church, you can go outside um, in New York. And that that statement is, no, so it's not just for Catholics or it's not just for Christians or it's not just for people who seem outwardly pious, mm. right? I mean, hey, the, the reading today, um, which I'm going to be preaching on, is from Isaiah, and you'll like this, especially, uh, you know, given the background of, of this show, is it says, uh, on the day of your fast, you carry out your own pursuits. You drive all your laborers. Your fast ends in quarreling and fighting, striking with wicked claw. Would that today you might fast so as to make your voice heard on high. So then he says, this is Isaiah. Here's the fasting I want, and here's the kind of prayer I want. Um, it's setting free the oppressed, breaking every yoke, sharing your bread with the hungry, sheltering the oppressed and the homeless, clothing the naked, not turning your back on your own. So it, it's not simply people who are sort of outwardly pious, right? 
um, who are the people who are invited to prayer. It's, it's people who are also, you know, seeking justice, right? So I, I, I do think we have this idea of the kind of, as they say, the frozen chosen, right? And that that's the kind of person who's, who's called to pray, but we're all called to pray. And, you know, in that, in that reading from Isaiah, he's saying, look, you know, put that prayer to action. It can't all just be sort of, oh, I'm fasting, I'm praying, I'm, I'm so pious. You know, and, and Jesus says that in the Gospels today, too. You know, so it's, it's, it's pretty clear in the, in, in the scriptures what God wants from us. Father, it has been so lovely to talk to you. I'm going to call you the chaplain of uh, Inspired. We're going to have you back. We'll have to have some conversations about other topics because this was a lot of fun. Always great to be with you. And um, yeah, keep me in your prayers. Reverend James Martin is a Jesuit priest, editor-at-large of America Magazine, and the author of numerous books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Jesus a Pilgrimage, and the Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. This conversation originally aired in 2021. February 23rd marked the beginning of the Christian season of Lent that lasts for 40 days. Next week, Baha'is around the world will mark the last month of their religious calendar, fasting for 19 days. Coming up, we explore how these rituals of fasting and gathering have ancient roots that can bring families closer together. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. <music> 